Thank you, Tricia. Welcome, everybody. If this is your first festival, you're in for a treat. If this is not, you know that. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful few days here, and thanks for getting up so early with us. Um, we have a great panel here this morning. Um, I am uh, uh, somewhat literally and certainly figuratively speaking the old man of this panel. Uh, if you walk around um, newsrooms today, places like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Time Magazine, the New Yorker, these are the kinds of places uh, that those institutions are trying to learn from. Um, and so we should really have a nice, lively discussion. Uh, I will extremely briefly introduce each of our three great panelists and then ask them to talk um, for a few minutes uh, about um, them and, and what they do. And then we'll open up a discussion among the four of us about media, about the future of media, about how it is changing and will change. Uh, and then we'll open it up to all of you and look forward to questions. We'll have microphones circulating. Um, and go from there. So starting right next to me is Spencer Bame, who's the Chief Strategic Officer of Vice. He also runs their in-house creative shop. In the middle is Chris Alchek, who's the CEO and co-founder of Mike. And on the end is John Steinberg, who's the CEO of the Daily Mail North America uh, and former president of BuzzFeed. Um, so as Tricia mentioned, I'm David Leonhardt. I'm uh, with the New York Times. I'm a columnist there. Uh, I've been a, an economics writer there. I've been the Washington Bureau Chief and about uh, six months ago founded a new venture within the Times called The Upshot, which um, covers politics and policy, does so with a heavy dose of data and data visualization, and also tries to do so with a, with a somewhat um, newer approach. Uh, if you look at the kinds of headlines that we have, uh, they are much more direct, they are much more BuzzFeed-like in some ways than typical headlines in the New York Times. We just had a piece over the weekend that got a lot of attention. The headline on it was something like, Americans think uh, we have the world's best colleges. We don't. That is obviously not a particularly Timesian headline. It wouldn't fit in that lovely three, three by two little box in the top of the right-hand corner. Um, but it's the way the world is moving, and for good reasons, and we'll talk about some of those. Uh, I just want to use my introduction to, I guess, give a little pep talk on behalf of media, because I think there's a lot of hand-wringing and anxiety about the decline of media and about how um, worrisome things are in the media. And I certainly don't mean to suggest that media and traditional media uh, doesn't have challenges. It does have challenges. Um, we're not here to talk about local newspapers, although we can talk about them. I am actually deeply worried about a lot of local newspapers. Um, I'm worried about exactly how we figure out our business model. But I think um, we spend so much time focusing on those worries. Um, I think it's important to emphasize the positive. And the way I like to emphasize it is by telling a very brief story. Um, 20 years ago, I was an intern at the Washington Post, trying to get hired there and not succeeding. Um, this story may have something to do with why. Uh, and I wrote a story my last week of the summer internship that I was very proud of, looking at the politics behind the building of a downtown sports arena. Uh, that is now known as Verizon Center. And it was about this um, Washington group called the Federal City Council um, that was behind, the behind-the-scenes power player in it. Um, and it was stripped across the top of the metro section, not that journalists care about where their stories run, um, but I still remember that 20 years later. And I felt very good about it, um, except I made one spelling mistake in the story. And try to think about what is the single one spelling mistake you would not want to make in the Washington Post. I think it's probably misspelling Catherine Graham's name. Um, and that's what I did. <laughs> Catherine Graham's name, the first two vowels are both A, and I had K-A-T-H-E-R. Um, I thought you were going to say you misspelled Washington. <laughs> that would be bad, too. A week after that story came out, I had no idea I misspelled it. There was a small item in um, Washington City paper 
um, small item that said, there is a special place in the dungeon of the Washington Post for someone named David Leonhardt. Um, I didn't know I'd spelled it wrong until a week later. Um, uh, imagine today what would happen if you spelled Catherine Graham's name wrong in the Washington Post, or to be more serious, made a more serious error. Imagine you made an argument about something going on in Iraq, or you made an argument about something going on in the economy that appeared to be either factually wrong or misleading. How long would it take for that to be corrected? About five minutes on Twitter, and it would probably be corrected in the newspaper before it even had appeared in print. And to me, that's an example of how much more liquid, to use a financial market term, the journalism business is in a good way. It's more liquid, it's more accountable, it's more creative, we can tell stories in ways we never used to. I'm gonna move things down the line here now, but later um, we'll put something up on the screen that I'll show you that gives a, a positive example of a story I wrote last summer that is vastly better than anything I could have written when I came to the Times 15 years ago. Not because I'm any better, but because the tools we have as journalists are so much better. And so as we talk about this incredible period of change, I guess I just want people to keep in mind that while yes, there are challenges, on the whole, as a journalist, as someone who's been a journalist even before I knew I was a journalist in second grade making little fake newspapers, I'd vastly rather be doing what I'm doing today than, than have been doing it 30 or 40 years ago. And with that, we'll move on down the line and get things going. Good morning. I'm Spencer from Vice. Can I just ask how many people know Vice in the room, just to get a sense? Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I thought it was going to be no one. Um, and the interesting story about Vice, like three or four years ago, if we were to have done something like this, well, we probably wouldn't have even been invited to do something like this um, for many reasons. Uh, probably no one in the room would have heard of Vice. And t t today, um, we're described as you know a hot young media property. Um, but the truth is, we've been around for 20 years. We started 20 years ago in Canada as a small zine, little magazine. Um, you know, writing record reviews and talking about fashion. Um, and today we have offices in 35 countries. Um, we're one of the fastest growing youth media companies in the world. And what we mean by youth media, um, we're predominantly digital, um, which I'll go into in a second, but we have a show on HBO, some of you might know, called Vice. Um, we, you know that? Yeah. So quite, it, it, we infamously sent Dennis Rodman to North Korea last year. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's you're all aware of that. But the, the, but the, 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 the reason we did that, um, which many of you might not know, is so we were able to tell a very important and serious story um, that young people would understand and get and talk to their friends about in a language that they, will, they, they, they understand. And that, that's really at the heart of what we do. Um, but prior to news, um, we launched a, a series of websites. We have a music site, we have a fashion site, we have a technology site, we just launched a sports, a sports, sports site. Um, we really are going across all youth passion points. What I mean by that is everything a young person cares about, and we describe young people as 18 to 35-year-olds. Um, we want to be there, we want to do it our way, um, and, and in a way which really, really connects. And we have a little video which probably will explain it better than I just have. Shane Smith is here. He is the co-founder and CEO of the international media company Vice. He wants Vice to be the next CNN, the next ESPN, and the next MTV digitally. You've also said you want to be the Time Warner of the street. We already are the Time Warner of the street. <laughs> If 
Vice magazine, which started in Montreal in 1994. It's become a global empire. You got Vice.com, international network of digital channels, TV production studio, a record label, an in-house creative services agency. You describe the Vice brand. What is it? Vice is the voice of a generation. The world's first truly global, all-digital youth media company. Every day, Vice delivers hours of original video online, covering the news, culture, and entertainment that defines the world we live in. Everyone was investing platform, 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 money into platform, but no one was saying, well, what are we going to fill that pipe with? Vice is a network of channels, each geared to the passions of young people today. The Creators Project is a celebration of art and creativity. This is for the globe. Noisy is the most exciting music channel on the web. I'm gonna do me, and I'm gonna be me. Motherboard documents the present and future of science and technology. Fightland brings you inside the world of MMA, the fastest growing sport in the world. Thump is a total immersion into electronic dance music. The party goes on. An ID brings together the worlds of the runway and the street. One of the reasons why Vice does so well is replace the media that doesn't do so well. This year, Vice adds three new channels to its growing family. Munchies is a food channel for the young and the young at heart. Real food, real people, real fun. Oh, so good! Vice Sports is a fresh take on the culture of sports. Storytelling that transcends the scores and the stats. The news cycle is like kindergartners playing soccer. Because the ball goes over here, everybody goes over here, the ball goes over, everybody goes over here. But there's a lot of other stuff happening in the world. So we just go and say, okay, we're going to go cover that stuff. Vice News is a first-person account of our changing world. Our reporters are on the ground, telling the stories that matter most in a language that young people understand and trust. Young people today have been marketed to since they were newborns. They've developed the most sophisticated bullshit detectors of all time. And the only way to circumvent that bullshit detector is to not bullshit. The people who shoot it have to be young. The people who cut it have to be young. The hosts have to be young. So if something is created in a boardroom, it will not work. Vice and its growing network of channels is defining the future of news and entertainment for young people everywhere. Well, there's a changing of the guard every generation in media, and we are the changing of the guard for Gen Y. Chris Alchek, the CEO and co-founder of Mike. We unfortunately don't have an epic promo video to show you this morning, <laughs> but uh, we'll have to do. Uh, so we started Mike in 2011, and it was myself and, and, and a close friend of mine, co-founder Jake Horowitz, uh, and we were seeing and hearing conversations amongst our peers about what was happening in the world. Everything from the Obama elections to the Arab Spring to topics like Trayvon Martin that would take over uh, our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, uh, usually for months on end. Uh, but what we weren't seeing 
was uh, a serious approach uh, to covering stories for young people. Uh, and so we launched Mike to do exactly that. Uh, today we reach over 19 million people a month uh, on topics ranging from climate change uh, to income inequality uh, to student loans. Uh, and what, we've, what we're really showing is that there is huge appetite uh, to learn about the issues amongst this generation uh, that's very underappreciated uh, by a lot of traditional media companies. Um, and so now we reach, uh, we're 35 people based in, based in New York and, and growing very quickly. So uh, I'm John Steinberg. I'm the uh, CEO of the Daily Mail in North America as of two weeks ago. Uh, and how many of you know Daily Mail or Mail Online? Okay, I'll definitely take that. Um, we were founded in 1896. The Daily Mail was founded in 1896 by Alfred Harmsworth, or Lord Northcliffe, as he became. Uh, and what's interesting is the site is basically exactly what that newspaper uh, was created as. It was a mid-market newspaper. Um, it was said that it was for stockroom boys by stockroom boys, uh, the busy man's daily journal, which would now be the busy person's daily journal. Uh, and a lot of the papers at the time were, uh, were for sort of aristocrats by aristocrats. And the male's goal was to create a newspaper that was interesting, short, pithy, um, had the quizzical, had the interesting, and sort of told people everything they needed to know A to Z in a very short time period. Um, and when you look at the site today, I would say that Mail Online, which was created by uh, Martin Clark, who was prior to that the, the uh, editor of the, of, the, of the Sunday Mail, um, very much holds to those values. Where very much about the stories that you need to know. We're the number one newspaper site in the world. Um, 170 million people a month come to the site. Uh, we've got a ton of video as well, about 50 million video views a month. And about 58% of our traffic goes to mobile, which is interesting because you know the, the newspaper is sort of the original mobile. So the, the paper very much holds to um, a heritage, which has kind of now gone into online as well. Uh, and I have a short sizzle reel that was actually created be, uh, before my time. All the stats are very old. It's a year ago, it's amazing to see how much the stats have grown. But if we show a little bit of that, uh, you'll get a sense of, uh, of the male vibe. We should call glitter what it is. It's shiny garbage is what it is. Once someone wears glitter, it is all over you. It's, it's not your choice, but you now have glitter. And if you don't believe me, here's what's in the news. This is from the Daily Mail. German TV talent show ends in chaos after female singer nearly chokes to death on glitter confetti. <laughs> Obviously, this was a very dangerous situation. I'm happy to say she's okay. Doctors reported that her condition was stable but festive. <laughs> I like got addicted like this. A tad addictive, but that's not a bad thing. I am addicted. It's definitely addicted. I am a thousand percent addicted. I am getting addicted to mail online. Mail online.
All right, so that's it. Thank you. Um, so let's start by looking ahead a little bit. Um, the theme of this conference is 10 years. 10 years feels like an awfully long time in the media business. Um, uh, but let's, uh, let's give it a shot. Um, 10 years from now, and John, I'll start with you. Um, what, how do you expect, what do you expect the media business to look like 10 years from now? I don't ever think more than a few months into the future. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that's what, um, you know, Kenny Lair, who was, uh, who was the chairman of BuzzFeed and who's, you know, a close mentor of mine, he once said that if you, if you think about climbing to the top of the mountain, it's too daunting. When I was at BuzzFeed, you know, the month before I joined, we had done no revenue. So if I thought about, okay, how do I get this to be, you know, tens of millions of dollars in revenue, it's, but if you think, how do I get $50,000 in revenue this month, that's very obtainable. So what I think about now with mail is, um, well, I guess I'm not directly answering your question. Uh, but, but I think very incrementally. I think how do we take part in the fact that all the video is going over the top, that that debundling is definitively going to happen? I think the Aereo case set it back a little bit. But look, the Napster ruling set back music streaming, but only for a few years. So I think to myself, what can we do each day to position ourselves for the fact that every digital media company is going to be a video company, and we're probably going to displace the television companies? And then each day I just grind a little bit to make that happen. Why are we going to displace the television companies? Why won't we just become in competition with them? Uh, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I just think it'll all get kind of demingled or mingled up. And, and what's a broadcast network and what's a cable channel and the idea that you can watch your Vice video and Vice will have a live show. And maybe some of it will be delivered over channels and some of it will be delivered directly. will be all indifferent. And the cable companies will become broadband companies if, if they aren't already. Um, which is why I think my attitude towards net neutrality is probably a little bit contrarian to most people. Like, I get the fact that the cable companies need to make money. They're putting all of this fiber in the ground, and they're losing, they're going to lose television channels as, as we know them now. Um, so that's a little bit of how I think kind of the immediate future will play out. So if one thing that's going to happen is that what we think of as newspapers are going to become TV networks, which is already happening, and TV networks are going to become... Uh, that all these things are going to become multimedia. What else do you guys see happening over the... If 10 years is too long a time frame, pick one year. What, what are some of the things that are not completely obvious today but you think are more likely than not to happen? Uh, so I, I think on the content creation side, uh, we've got an incredibly exciting 10 years ahead. Uh, already we've seen content now and stories now coming from anybody with a mobile phone. Uh, and that's obvious uh, to everybody, but... Uh, ten years ago, it wouldn't have been obvious that uh, a, a protester in Egypt would have as big of a megaphone uh, as any journalist at the Times uh, in New York. Uh, and what we're seeing, I think, ten years from now is uh, the presence of, of video uh, live from anybody's watch, Google Glass, or phone, or whatever wearable we're using is going to be everywhere. Uh, and so uh, one of the most inter interesting trends we're seeing is is content is coming from a hugely increasing number of places uh, that's well beyond what many people would define as a traditional media company. Uh, and the best media companies uh, and the best news organizations are figuring out how to process all of that data, uh, how to process all of those stories, uh, and, and, and share them with their audiences. Uh, and I, I, I can't even imagine what that's going to look like 10 years from now, but I know it's, it's only going like this. I mean, for, for us, the, the revolution started with video. Um, we, we, we believe you know, video is the most emotional form of storytelling. Um, it's really easy for us to send two people, one person, anywhere, anywhere in the world with a video camera, just to turn that video camera on and shoot what we're seeing. 
um, as we're able to put more people on the ground, um, we're going to be able to tell more news stories, um, and young people will have access to so much more today than they've ever had before. Um, and then we're also going to start to invite young people to tell the stories for us and to turn their cameras on. Um, so it, it goes from a, you know, a very small amount of news stories to an incredible amount of news stories. Um, it just becomes much, much richer, very, very fast. It's happening right now, but it's, you know, the next 10 years, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up. Let's talk about money, because none of this works without money, right? Um, it's expensive uh, to create video. Uh, it's expensive to gather information, uh, and it's even more expensive to put it on video. Uh, I don't know whether any of you have heard about or read parts of the New York Times innovation report that initially leaked and then the Times itself released, but I actually recommend it. It was not intended to be a public document, so it's bracingly honest, um, which makes it for more entertaining reading. Um, uh, and one of the things it talks about um, is how our revenue is shifting from um, becoming less advertiser-based and more audience-based. Um, uh, so we not only are able to charge a lot of money for our print product, but we've begun charging for online, which has been extremely successful. Um, in, at the same time, there's sort of a secular change, mostly in the down direction of all kinds of advertising and media. So that raises the question, how is it that all of these information gatherers that we're talking about, setting aside the Egyptian protester who's going to do it for no money, and maybe that's part of the answer, what is the business model that actually pays for folks at the Daily Mail or at any of our places to go out and acquire information. It, it, you know, coming into this industry four years ago with no experience as you know, working in the media, it was shocking to me that you had spectacular progress on the editorial side and just a disinterest on the business side in terms of evolving what the ad products were and evolving the revenue. And that is a problem. That is, that is the, ultimately the issue with, with the giant church-state divide at a company like the New York Times, which is you have the editorial people, you have the business people. The business people, and I'm speaking from my own perspective as one of the business people in a media organization, are typically meant to feel like they're less important or they're somehow corrupting of the editorial. So they're sort of shunted into a corner, and thus there's no innovation in the revenue products for years and years and years. The banner was founded 20 years ago, and if you look at a company like the New York Times up until you know, a year or two ago with, with when, all the, when you started doing the native stuff, there had been no evolution of those products. So how can you not work on something for 20 years and expect it to be okay? The solution to this is, and I'll defer to Spencer after this, because, because Vice is the king of, of revenue generation in this space. Uh, you know, at, at BuzzFeed, you know, we, I, I'd like to think that we're royalty in the revenue generation space, but nobody really comes close to, uh, to Vice. Um, it's a 360-degree digital offering. That means that the client comes to you, and you offer them everything from custom creative video, custom stories created in the voice of the, uh, of the editorial product, you know, separated obviously from the editorial team, um, high impact display as well. And then if it's a product that can be purchased right away, um, some kind of ability for direct response for a person to buy it. But you, you have to present that entire thing. You can't just say, here's some banners. Is there a tension yeah. between presenting it in the voice of Vice or the New York Times and still saying, oh yeah, but it's separate? <coughs> wow. Now we can talk for an hour. <laughs> I mean, the, the, so we, we, do, we do everything that John just said. Um, in, in addition to that, I think we, we, we think like this. Um, at the heart of every great brand is an idea. And traditionally, that idea has been translated into advertising, a print ad, a TV ad, and that's been the realm of advertising agencies. And that still exists today, and many advertising agencies do it very, very well. Um, the shift that's happening that began a few years ago is that brands started to think and act like media companies. 
Um, so they started to publish themselves, and they, they you know, started to shoot their own videos, and they also started to look to media companies like us as experts to, to help them. Um, so we work extremely closely um, with brands, understanding their business, understanding what their brand's about, and then we take that thinking and attach it to content that we're making. Now, in the world of music and fashion and sport, um, it's much easier to do this. Um, it's, you, you don't have an ethical... There's, there's, there's still an ethical... There's still the need to have church and state to be very transparent and very clear that a brand is bringing you this and why they're bringing it to you. Um, and that's really been the, the heart, you know, 80% of our business over the last five or six years. News is a different beast altogether. Um, it's very, very tough. And Vice launched Vice News about eight, years, eight weeks ago um, without any advertising for a number of reasons, um, partly because we just had to get it up because we had a team in uh, the Ukraine at the moment when everything was kicking off, so we just turned it on. But also partly because we wanted to figure out our advertising model, and we're getting closer and closer to it. Um, but we're taking it very seriously. We're about to publish our own rules and regulations of how we think about branded content. Um, and we're going to create sections within the site which are more brand-friendly, like money and health. Um, it's a real tricky one because you, you have to make money. It's tough. What about the, the equivalent of subscription fees? Do you, do you not think for mass brands that'll be significant? Well, you know, the New York Times lowered their subscription fee to, get, to gain broader, to gain broader um, kind of a distribution in the early part of the 20th century. And dropping it, I think, from three cents to one cents was the right decision then because ultimately the broader audience with the ad revenue should almost always be a much bigger business yep. than the subscription business. I mean, there's a, you can point to HBO as a few kind of outlying type examples, but ultimately, no, I don't think it's big enough. Generally, we think, we think that content should be free to the audience, um, especially to millennials. Millennials expect it to be free. They've always expected it to be. We're starting to look at potential models for offering additional exclusive content. Um, but I think the heart of our brand is the philosophy that it should be free. We, we should find ways to monetize it. And we should push it out to the And world. do you think the brands that are now charging will have to stop doing so? The ESPNs, the Wall Street Journals, the New York Times, the HBOs? Or do you think there will have kind of uh, 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 more than two, but at least two different models, right? One. For certain set brands, there's the ability to charge, and then you have a, and revenue. And for the mass brands, it's free, and it's an advertising model? Or does everyone go to the free advertising model? I, I, <clears throat> I think it'll depend on who's paying. I mean, in ESPN's case, the cost gets passed through through the cable company and the cable operate, operator. We may see a model like that direct to mobile phones and, and mobile phone carriers in the future. Um, but when it comes to millennials right now, <clears throat> their focus is on finding really interesting, high-quality stories, and they're not used to paying for anything. Uh, and so if they will pay for things when the product gets good enough, uh, but nobody's news product is good enough to convince uh, almost any millennial to pay today, and that's why none of them are paying. Uh, and on top of that, you have, you know, millennials are the biggest generation in American history, 80 million people, uh, and brands need to reach them. And so the demand for advertisers to work with the smartest, best media companies that reach millennials is massive. And so I actually don't think we're running into a place where we're not going to be able to afford uh, to pay for content creation. I think we're coming to, we're coming to a place where brands are, stop, are not, no longer working with TV companies and working with us because we're the ones who reach uh, this generation. I think the interesting thing about life, you think about the way brands behave and the way brands communicate. If, if you have a, a young person's life like this, most brands just play in the joyous and the happy and 
optimistic and, you know, live your life to the fullest. But there's the rest of life, which brands, for some reason, are kind of you know, scared to touch. And that's the realm of news. I think, I think our job is going to be partly to persuade uh, these brands to actually get into it's a more complicated world to play, but it's very, very rich if they were. If yeah, they were I mean, to. and when you look at what our generation really cares about, I mean, it's incredible. They're, they're very, very issue-driven, uh, whether it's, you know, the economy, education, <clears throat> or uh, the environment. Millennials, quote-unquote, deeply care about these issues, uh, and the brands that align themselves with these issues are, are end up being most successful in the long run. I realize it depends on your perspective whether this is optimistic or pessimistic, but from my perspective, it's optimistic. I'm actually optimistic that a lot of people, including a lot of millennials, will pay for information. I completely agree they're not going to get out a credit card, put it next to them on their desk, yeah. and enter stuff. But the fact is paying for stuff is getting really, really easy, right? And so to me, the idea that someone might be willing to, to press a couple things here and pay 20 bucks a month for special access to ESPN's website. It's, it, it strikes me there is something timeless about the idea, for all the ways the millennials are different, to me there's something timeless about the idea that human beings want information about the world around them. And when people want something in a market economy, they are often willing to pay for it when they want it enough and it is good enough. And that's why I sort of see a sort of hybrid model in which we have a combination of advertising um, and subscription models. But obviously, we're just trying to guess. One thing that's interesting to me here, and Chris, you've talked a lot about this, is the demand for serious, high-quality news. Let's spend a minute on this before we open things up to everybody else. Could I ask you to put up that website we talked about before? So I think there's a lot of concern um, and, and worry that a lot of what the new media world is is fluff, right? The offhand cliche, which is unfair to BuzzFeed, is the stuff about cat pictures, right? That's, that becomes the one-line um, idea for something that's not serious. But I think one of the things you hear from us is there's actually enormous audience for really serious journalism. And yes, it's true that we no longer have a print US news, but we have Quartz, <laughs> and we have Vox, and we have all these folks who are up here. So I want to show you this. This is a story I wrote uh, about a year ago. Um, uh, I did it the traditional way. I traveled to Atlanta. I interviewed some people. It was based on an academic study that I'd gotten in advance. Um, the story I wrote, the text which ran on the front page, would have been no different than basically than what I had written when I joined the Times 19 years ago, 15 years ago, no better. Um, uh, everything else except what I did was massively better. So look at this map. It shows you your odds of escaping poverty and going from the lowest fifth to the top fifth in every metropolitan area in the country, and you can scan over it. Um, uh, you can see where it's easier to escape poverty, like places like Colorado and Utah in the Northeast, and where it's harder, like the industrial Midwest and the Southeast. Um, and if we scan down a little bit, you'll see other stuff on there. So there's my old text. There's photos. We would have had those for a long time. Um, but we never would have had something like this or that map above. Instead, 15 years ago, we would have had a boring little black and white graphic. Um, it wouldn't have been boring, but it wouldn't have been anything like this, where you could have seen all these things changing. And one of the things that strikes me, when you, when you look at the Vice video, when you look at all these things, yes, there is a certain amount of fluff in what we're doing, because human beings like fluff. Um, but there is also an enormous amount of real substance. What is the most visited page in the history of the New York Times' website? Um, it is a quiz based on a piece of academic research on linguistics. It is the 25-question dialect quiz. I'm guessing many of you have taken. If you haven't, take 60 seconds. It's the most visited page in the history of the New York Times. It is essentially a piece of academic research on linguistics turned into a data visualization interactive. Right? I mean, that, that I think, shows the hunger for real but, substance. But you know, David, I don't even like to get into that 
debate and proving to people that um, it isn't all about cats and it isn't all about fluff. Because when you get in that conversation, it's almost as if 100 years ago, all people did was read hard news. Yes. And then now suddenly all they do is like entertainment, because fluff is really entertainment. Since the dawn of time, since our paper was founded in 1896, there has been a much larger appetite for entertainment than there has been for hard news. There's nothing wrong with that. Life is incredibly difficult, and people have enormous challenges that impact them day to day, and they need some pleasant way to get away from it and enjoy themselves. That doesn't mean that they don't care about hard news, but it means that there's just a bigger appetite for entertainment. It's why NBC runs 10 hours a day of entertainment and 30 to 60 minutes a day of news, depending on whether or not you count the Today Show. I don't count the Today Show as news. So, you know, given, given that, no, it's entertainment. I think it's entertainment. Um, let's, let's count it as news. So two hours and then, you know, basically nine and a half hours. Count it as one-third news, two-thirds. Right, exactly. I mean, look, I love Hoda and Kathy. I mean, that, that goes to my point. I mean, that's the most fun, delightful way to start your day. Um, but the proportion has basically always been yeah. the same. I mean, another way to put that is it is important to have that debate because it's out there. But, it's, but the way to push back on it is right. to say, if anything, things are getting better. Way better. I, think I there's, would argue. Yeah, there's way more hard news consumed now than I think than ever before. But when people put you in that – in a BuzzFeed, it would happen all the time. They'd say, oh, it's just about cats. People are consuming way more of the entertaining stuff than they're entertaining the hard news. And I, I, I just don't want to get into that debate because it's the truth and it's always been that the way. The one thing that I do think is getting worse is the segmentation, is the fact that it is easier for people to go find stuff that uh, already confirms their pre-existing views and just to read that. I would argue that is one deleterious it, development. It, it is, but it isn't also. I mean, on with, with Facebook and Twitter, you see what your friends share, and you see what uh, usually a diverse group, you know, on our site, the average uh, user has 490 friends. Uh, so that's, that's a lot of different sources of content that you're seeing. Uh, and I think, and, and this, this plays into why this generation is different, but you're seeing people can't ignore a lot of these topics. No matter how much you don't care about something like Trayvon Martin, if you're 22, you read about it, and you read about it every day for a month and a half. And I think that's actually an incredibly important part of what's shaped this generation uh, to really think differently than previous generations. And, and another data point would be uh, the swing in approval of same-sex marriage amongst this generation versus previous generations. I think 10 years ago, nobody would have predicted that our generation would so overwhelmingly across the entire United States support same-sex marriage. And a lot of that attitude shift was driven by, and, and this is my thesis, not, not, not the truth, was driven by uh, our common language on Facebook and Twitter and, and how we talk about issues in an incredibly high-velocity way like no other generation has before. I think that the, the idea of a common language globally is fascinating and I think at our best, when Vice does news, and by the way, for us, news is by far the majority of views that we get. You know, 80% of our billion views on YouTube is news. Um, when we do at our best, when we, when, we, when we become very human in our storytelling, we almost become an empathy machine. I think suddenly reporting on the news and showing the news actually can bring the world together in a way and push ideas forward. And, and thinking forward. I have this little video, it's like just two minutes, can I show it? Do it. Prior to Vice News launching, we went out and we just spoke to young people about what they would like to see in the news and how they'd like to see it differ from what they're getting today, which is, you know, in this country, certainly leaning one way or leaning the other way. It's like two minutes, it's pretty fast.
We've been going around the world talking to people about the big issues that matter to them and how they want the news to cover them. London, England. Mexico City. Beirut, Tel Aviv. Tokyo, Japan. My parents' generation grew up with broadcast TV. Three stations, three news anchors. And that's the way it is. We don't have three channels. We have 3,000 channels. There's a revolution going on in the media right now, and you need to be a part of it. The way that people are getting their news is evolving every day, and that's not even an exaggeration. This generation is so bombarded with information, it's very difficult to look back and understand what this means. Budgets are being cut, newspapers are closing down. Standard news channel. There's maybe like five or six stories rolling each day, and that can't be all that's going on. You find that people actually have a lot more in common uh, than that which divides us. But you wouldn't know that when you listen to our politicians speak or when you listen to the mainstream media who are so interested in talking about what separates us. We should do something about it. Now with the, with the help of technology and social media and the new means of communication, it has become easier for a person to express himself loud. You can really get your voice out there, not just to your own country, but to the whole world. I hate hearing that my generation is lazy. There are absolutely people my age around the world that feel the same way that I do. The internet, the new tools on our disposal, the revolutions, the uprisings, these are all methods towards changing the way people access information, gather information, Every day, you know, brings with it new adventures and new stories. The true story is not just what the government and other media platforms want to show. I think information must be free. It's very important for us. Everything that's going on around us, we care about it, we care about our futures. Part of being an adult is engaging with the world. I think there's an opportunity here to really engage young people in news again. News is all about what's happening with the humankind, what's happening in the human condition. We all have the chance to interact with each other and learn about each other's lives. This is how the modern world works across the globe. So let's end here before we open it up. I've listed a couple things that I'm worried about. From a, Not from a... The state of the media, to some extent, who cares, right? What matters is sort of information in a democratic society, right? So I've mentioned the, uh, my worries about local papers. I've mentioned my worries about people segmenting. From a civic or democratic perspective, what concerns do you have looking forward about the state of information in our society? Well, I think you should go first. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I'm unbelievably optimistic. I don't think I'm, you know, and I think that, you know, when I turned around this year and there was Policy Mike in New York, there was Elite Daily, there was The Skim, there was, um, I mean, there's like five more that I can mention. Give me, give me a couple more. Vox, right? Vice. Four years ago, there, that didn't exist. There wasn't all of these, well, vices, but not at this scale and this excitement and being able to really capture people's attention and have all these media companies, um, you know, namely in New York. So there's a thriving industry. There's, these, these companies, by and large, um, are profitable overall, are profitable at their core business and are investing in growth. And if they stopped investing in new markets, they would all be profitable. Um, so I'm unbelievably optimistic and excited. I mean, I, I, if you asked me four years ago did I think I was going to work my entire career in media, I would say I'm not sure that there's going to be a media industry. Maybe there's just maybe there's just BuzzFeed, and maybe that's an outlier. Now I would say, yeah, I, I love it. I think it's going to thrive forever. I think that we're going through a golden age now. That's not unlike what entrepreneurs faced in the late '80s when the cable networks got rolled out and everyone was doing channels. Um, 
So, you know, I, I go to bed, you know, worried because I'm a neurotic, worried person about our business and are we going to do this and are we going to do that? But I'm generally optimistic and excited about the space. I, think we, I, th I mean, as, as media leaders, I, th I think we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do it right. Um, and it's, in many ways, it's kind of fallen in our hands and we suddenly look up and now, and now we're the talk of the town. But, you know, we, we want to do it right. We want to be the voice of this generation. We want to do it better than other generations. We want to let young people know what's going on everywhere and, and let them learn, let them think and let them explore. And it's, it's, it's still somewhat the Wild West um, and the opportunities are just so great. Yeah, and <clears throat> I, would, I would end by saying if we don't do it right, we won't have an audience. I think our, you know, this, this 20, highly educated 20-something group of consumers uh, is highly skeptical. And if we do the ad, if we're inappropriate about how we serve ads or we push low-quality journalism in front of people, uh, we'll lose our audience. Uh, and I think that holds for any media company. And so in a lot of ways, we've got the best control we could ever have, which is great analytics that tells us as soon as our audience is gone, uh, it's over. Uh, and so I'm optimistic that if we keep our eye very focused on what 20-somethings want, their core values are actually very positive for, for media. The analytics, and, and, and let's get a mic circulating. Um, the analytics, uh, I'll stall. Here we have a question right over here. Um, the analytics are fascinating, right? It used to be we publish stories and I could say to myself, wow, the Times has a circulation of a million people. A million people read my story, right? And now, um, if you're a manager at the New York Times, you can go and look up and see how many people are looking at your story right now. <laughs> Could you each comment on what Twitter is to you and what it can be in the future? Because as I look at you, I could never get to all of your content without it. Vivian is up front, so you've got to be very careful. Hey, Vivian. Vivian runs all media for Twitter, so. <laughs> I, I think for us, uh, Twitter has replaced the news wires. Uh, Twitter, news breaks on Twitter first. Uh, and our editorial team needs to be very in tune with what's happening on Twitter. Uh, it's also an incredible opportunity to uh, promote your own stories. And, and we had uh, a, a great example of this. After the Santa Barbara shooting, uh, one of our reporters uh, decided to start the hashtag YesAllMen. Uh, and that was uh, meant to drive awareness that, uh, that you know, there's a lot of men that are actually uh, standing up for women's rights and, and, and care about that issue very deeply. Uh, and that story uh, and that hashtag both together circulated incredibly wide, widely uh, all over mainstream media companies and, 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 and print newspapers. And that sort of dual nature of being both a, a, a newswire that you can contribute to in real time uh, is one of the most exciting parts about where media is going. Yeah, it, it, it brings our audience into the story, allows our audience to talk directly to our reporters while they're on the ground and them to talk back. I mean, it's integral to everything that we do. It pushes us forward. Um, it tells us where to go next in the world. Um, yeah, it allows that two-way streak. I love it as a reader and as a writer um, and as an information gatherer. I think it's only weaknesses or human weaknesses, right? Sometimes um, uh, word can pass and spread in a way that isn't fully verified, but that's not Twitter's fault, right? That's human nature. Um, uh, I think one of the things that I've been doing at The Upshot is I've been trying to push journalists to spend more time on Facebook, which is a way of saying um, journalists love Twitter, 
you do not have to push journalists to spend time on Twitter. Um, uh, it is a fascinating place to um, hear feedback from, from people and, and participate in debate. And I, I'll love it sometimes when I'll see my, my colleague Ross Douthit or, 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 or my friend John Chait, who are, Ross is conservative, John is liberal, and they respect each other. And I'll be scrolling through my two Twitter feed and I'll see something like, Ross Douthit, 39 replies. <laughs> and I'll know that he and John have had some huge long back and forth yeah. on it. Uh, yeah. I have a question oh, back here. Um, I don't have to do the mic. So given the uh, evolution of media consumption and the demand for short-form content, I'm curious what you all think about long-form documentary, long-form journalism. Where do you see the future of that? Okay. Um, interesting. Uh, our, our story with YouTube is really interesting. When YouTube first came to us and asked us to put up videos, um, they did what you would expect them to do, which is tell us to Great. Very, very short, bark at the camera, um, make it short and sweet, three to five minutes. And we did that, um, but that was kind of antithesis to who we are as a media company, because we have a history of long-form documentaries. And it didn't work, it was a disaster. And then we just started to put up our long-form 20-minute pieces on YouTube, and we started to find that people watched them, and watched them from beginning to end. And in fact, today, we, are, we have the number one engagement on YouTube, um, seven minutes and above, um, across all of our news videos. So, for us, it's not about short-term or long-term. It's about cutting a story to the length of the story. Um, and then if you do that well enough, and if you do it with elegance and poetry and whatever, whatever story techniques you need, someone will watch it. So yeah, we believe in, in long-form docs, and they're here to stay. My, our long-form stuff has done extremely well as well. Sometimes you see most viewed a, a 9,000-word piece. Um, I do have a little bit of a worry. This isn't about media. This is just about how technology affects us. and I'm very much a, 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 we shouldn't try to change this. Technology is overwhelmingly for the good, overwhelmingly. But I do worry a little bit about attention spans, right? That, that carving out the space to watch a 20-minute video, I find this for myself, or read something that's 15,000 words. It isn't always easy when I know I can pick this up any minute, check my email, check Twitter, check a score, or check anything. Um, and so while stuff is doing well and I expect it will continue to do well, I think there will be a long-term challenge for media companies to essentially create a little space where people are not tempted to immediately click out. Right? The material will still have to be good enough. If it's not, people are gone. Yeah, but you know, my feeling is I, I do think that there is this current obsession in the media with, like, with broccoli and spinach, right? which is like everybody trying to show how much broccoli and spinach they can get people to eat. And I feel like a lot of the long-form stuff is unnecessarily long. Yeah. It could be much shorter. And what's funny is you know, uh, Lord Norcliffe comes to the US in the early part of the 1900s at the request of Alfred Pulitzer to create the newspaper of the future. He let him edit it for one day. And the first thing he says in the early 1900s is, don't submit any articles longer than 250 words. Don't even show it to me. And I think there's a pride also in conciseness and brief. And yes, people do read long form online. In fact, they read it on phones. And it's amazing them sometimes to see the engagement. But I don't want the measure of our success to be how much broccoli no, and spinach can we make people eat? No, it just it, we, you need a real diversity of stuff. If we were going yeah. to a world of all a world of all less than two fifty, I think it would be worrisome. But I don't think right. we are. But 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 now, but I think the, I think the pendulum has now swung back. Like I mean, most of these long form things that you read, especially you know on all these different platforms now, where people are trying to show how good they are at long form. Right. It's, it's like you know, 15,000 words that could easily have been 2,000, you know? Most long form is too long, right? So is, um, who's doing the mics? You all are? Okay, come right here. Hi, I'm curious to know if you have any data on what types of climate change stories resonate best with the millennials? I, I, so we, um, 
it, it, it really, so we, we published a story uh, last week that, that got, I think, over 25,000 Facebook shares. Uh, and the title of the story was, uh, if, you've, if you're 29 years old, you've never experienced this. Uh, and it was very grabbing, and it was pointing to the fact that for the last, now at the end of June, 352 months, uh, the average temperature of the globe was, or the, the temperature, the average temperature of that month was higher than the average temperature of the globe in the 20th century. Uh, and that was a way in which to bring, you know, a complicated topic uh, like climate change and just bring it to the human level. Uh, and it wasn't dumbed down. If you look at the story, just Google it, uh, you'll see, you know, there's some very in-depth research in there. There's some in-depth charts. But what we're doing, and I think Vice and BuzzFeed uh, and Daily Mail do this incredibly well, uh, is take complicated issues, policy issues, uh, and humanize them, but don't dumb them down. Uh, and in this case, you know, the, 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 the title is very much getting you to click. Uh, but it's getting you to click to something smart uh, that's thoughtful and... and, and, and and really, the sort of things we want people people reading, and, and the upshot is doing this incredibly well. Also, we uh, I've explained all the different channels that we have. We're launching a sustainability channel and environment channel in the fall um, because of young people's desire for it. Um, and it's, vice doesn't come down on sides, right or left. You know, we just point our camera and we just show the world. But on the environmental issue, we've decided to make a real stand and say, hey, this is ridiculous. You know, when you have the world, we have 50% of, of people saying it exists and 50% say it doesn't exist and 98% you know, of scientists saying it does exist. You know, it's, it's the one issue which we're, we're saying and you know, the numbers do back it up that we're going to you know, put an anchor down and say, look, we have to take notice. I wonder if the question is, how do we get uh, people older than, than 65 to care about climate change? <laughs> Millennials may be okay yeah. on it. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ginny Galisa now. And first, I want to applaud you. You know, I came to one of these panels for the Ideas Fest, I think, two years ago. And everyone sitting up there was a gray-haired man. And a college student stood up, and she said, so I'm noticing that everybody up there has gray hair and are in their 40s and 50s and 60s. And I want to know how you know what I want to hear in the news. So it's really refreshing to see um, people talking to another generation. So um, Walter Isaacson recently launched the Isaacson School for New Media at Colorado Mountain College. And I'm wondering, except for the obvious courses that they have, what do you think the most important course or curriculum should be added to that program for the Isaacson School for New Media? Math. Math? Math. Uh, get everyone comfortable playing with spreadsheets, get everyone comfortable, um, let no one become a journalist who says I'm not a math person. That's like saying I'm not a facts person. Um, math is simply a way to present facts. Um, uh, and it doesn't need to be super high level math. Um, in some ways I'm an example. I was a math major in college and not good at it. <laughs> um, uh, but it does not take high-level math in order to do the kind of stuff you need in order to, to present reality. I, I would add voice. Uh, one of the incredible, or one of the one of the pieces that is really resonating now with this generation is is a conversational, really approachable tone. And I think, uh, I mean, if you read David's stories and you took off the byline, you would know it was a David story. And that's, um, I mean, that's there's only a certain number of journalists that get there, but 
in today's world where Twitter and Facebook are huge, uh, you have to build a personal voice that's recognizable. Uh, and, and you'll see that we're all, we all gravitate towards the journalists that uh, write with the clearest, most personal voice. And, and I think that's got to be, that's, that's key. And, and Vice does this in every story. Um, but that's really key to the, to, the, to the future of the stars in the industry. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think it starts earlier than, um, I, I think a lot about primary education more. I have two small children and, um, you know, getting, getting young women and actually my, my little girl involved in STEM education much earlier on, I think to me is the education issue. I'm not directly answering your question, but to me is the thing that's kind of most top of mind. I think one of the big themes that we have in the world right now is the idea of the maker movement, is the idea of sustainability, and there are so and robotics, and there are so many ways to get engaged in that and to get young people engaged in that. And you, you can buy a kit online. We, we bought a kit online to grow mushrooms in your house. You know, there's things called little bits where you can put together circuits. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's board games now. There's one called Robot Turtles, which I bought for the kids, which teaches them programming skills using cards. I think that for all children, um, and particularly young girls. It's vital that they get exposed to and encouraged in making things, getting their hands dirty, programming, robotics, all of these different things because those, I mean, those, those are all the ways they're going to be able to kind of develop the world and create things and be involved in climate change and also create companies and stuff in the future. So um, I, I, think, I think almost that point is sort of too late, I, I actually believe, to really, to really have a real impact on people. So... I am a millennial, I guess, I'm 17. Um, and yeah, I guess I count, right? Um, I just wanted to ask, I appreciate content from the New York Times like Snowfall or those interactive, interactive graphics that you mentioned. Um, one of the things I like is that the New York Times has put a lot of focus on the content and making sure that that's not diluted by ads as much as, that's my impression. Um, but where the line blurs, as you guys have mentioned, between sort of branded content and genuine news content that you guys produce for yourselves, how do you keep the dilution away from just the content that you want to produce that's informative versus the things that make you money without going out of business? No, I mean, no, nothing's more important than the content that we want to make. That's the first thing. I mean, the most important thing for Vice is the Vice brand. So if, if we were to dilute it in any way, we would be in trouble. Um, we make money in various ways. Um, the vast majority of it is actually a brand sponsoring money, sponsoring a show that we were going to make anyway, and then we're really good at selling that to a brand. There are instances where we will work with a brand to get to a show that we would want to make, um, and then we have to be very clear, you know, in the way we tell the story up front that this was made possible by, this was brought to you by, um, and it can't it can't shift because of edit that the brand manager wants or shift because of a, an idea that they want to put through it. It's just, it's, it, it's hard. It's hard and it's a journey that we're still going on, still trying to figure it out. Um, but for the most part, I think we get it right. We have made mistakes. Um, yeah. My grandfather spent his career selling advertisements for McGraw-Hill, which then owned Business Week magazine. And one thing that gives me some comfort, this is an echo of something John said before, is this isn't a new struggle, right? They had to spend all this time, well, we have this ad from GM, and we have this article talking about how badly GM is doing. Let's keep those in different places of the magazine, <laughs> right? Um, I think, I mean, your, your, your generation is incredibly sophisticated when it comes to this. You understand that we have to make money somehow, but you also understand that what we do shouldn't get in the way about journalism. So it's kind, of, it's kind of set up within your values, I think, as a generation. 
So we just have to be incredibly careful not to step over the line. And, and when we do, and tra total transparency, and when we do, be honest about it, because we're still learning every day. It gets more and more complicated. Um, yeah, so we talk about it every single day. We, we're always talking about it. We're all interested in news here because that's why we're here. Um, and I'm guessing, except for the very eloquent young man in the middle, we're not all millennials. Um, who's speaking to us? Like, we're all curious about news. We're all interested in being yeah. in the conversation, but who's talking to us? I, I, I love that topic. I think it's very interesting. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly close with my parents, so we spend a lot of time talking about news and public policy and things like that. I think that what happens is these things start out as youth and millennial brands, and it keeps them edgy and hot and smart and unique, and then they penetrate a bit older, and people get into them over time. And I think it's a very nice progression. I think it is like music. I think in most cases, a lot of music gets, dis gets discovered by young people and TV shows, and then those get introduced to their friends and peers and parents that are older. I think you saw it happen with Huffington Post. We definitely saw it happen with BuzzFeed, and I think it's already happened a bit um, with Daily Mail, even though our audience tends to be fairly concentrated in millennial. And I think that, that Vice, for example, not to speak for Spencer, but Vice will tip older as well. To um, the woman's question earlier about you know, how do you stay in touch with all these things, I mean, that really is the challenge. If you're a consumer of the media and a lover of technology and you're an early adopter, it's to try to step outside yourself and experiment and look at things and try to understand why do people um, like them. And then you can get to it a little bit earlier if you take pleasure in being at things early. So for example, Elite Daily um, and Policy Mike are, are the two up-and-coming, very young media companies, um, period. New York, but really period. You could start reading that stuff now and get into it now, or you could wait till it penetrates up in three to four years. So I think that's, that's my answer. It, it, it always gets to the older generation. I think no, no, go. I think you guys would love Vice, and you might, you might find that surprising. Maybe you wouldn't. Um, but certainly the HBO show, Vice, and which does age up. The TV ages up generally, but the, the, the show does. And I think we're, we're tapping into something which is universal. It goes beyond this generation. Um, I think the crazy thing, when I often say this, is that you know, a millennial is a millennial for a generation. They, they're going to get older and older and older. They're not suddenly going to shift their values and change. So I think what we're tapping into is a, a real human insight of today um, more than anything else. I also think part of the answer is that I think some of the, the talk of the millennials is exaggerated. Yes, they're different, but so is Generation X, and yeah. so are the baby boomers. They're human beings. Yeah. And so it's not as if a great piece of, of content, a great story, a great interactive um, appeals to one generation yeah. and, and, and also when, when, we, when, we, when, we, when This is the truth. Like when we think about what we're doing, we're not really thinking about millennials that much. We're just thinking about us. Like how would we do this in a way which we think is better, that would be more engaging, more emotional? And that output um, would appeal to you and others. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we are out of time. So there's one question we had here in the front. I would love to keep calling on folks. But Um, so it's one thing to have 500 friends on Facebook, and it's another thing to actually have friends. Um, and it's one thing to tweet a story, and it's another thing to, to care deeply about that story and to act on it. Or to even story. read it. Or even to read it. Sure. Um, and so in an, in, in an age in which we're constantly kind of showing who we know and what we know, um, you know, is it enough for especially American millennials to be reading these issues and Facebooking and tweeting these issues? Um, you know, or are we, or are we not acting on these issues? Um, and how does 
you know, is there a role of news of, of pushing more towards just uh, these social engagement of, of, of articles? Yeah, I mean, on, our, on, on policy, on Mike, uh, we, we did a survey recently, and we reached 19 million people a month, and 80% of them have voted or uh, signed a, a petition. And so I think if you look at the, the data, in 2008, uh, Millennials voted at a higher percentage than any youth group in the last 50 years. Uh, and you would have said, oh, that was because Obama was so hot. Uh, but then in 2012, they voted at a higher rate than they did in 2008. Uh, and so I think uh, if you made that statement and to a wide group of millennials, they'd all agree. And they would say, yes, it's not enough to just read and share. You actually have to do something. Uh, but I, I truly believe that it is consensus amongst this generation uh, that people want to do things. I think they want to do them outside of the legacy institutions that our parents built, uh, that millennials, for better or for worth, worse, have no respect for. Uh, they want to do it on their own terms, and they are doing it on their own terms. And in a lot of ways, it's our job to amplify that. Do you, do, do you think <clears throat> after someone like a young guy or girl reads an article, you could give them something to do, sign this, go here, write this letter? Don't, don't use plastic or, or, or not? Is that going too far? No, I, I think you can. I think you want to, uh, you want to find the, f the, the right line between uh, catering and pushing and being too much of an activist and not enough of a journalist. Uh, and some of the best journalists are very good activists, uh, and millennials are more okay with that than, than previous generations. But you definitely... Uh, you don't want to play your cards too strongly if you want to be seen as somewhat unbiased. Where, where, um, so. where, where it works easily and where I think online is the best is social policy issues where elected officials will move purely based on what they think the people want. And I think that if you look at marriage equality, I think marriage equality was something that happened because of online and it was so clear to our elected officials what everybody in this country wanted. The people, the people wanted marriage equality. When it, when it doesn't work online is where it's a complicated, confusing issue where simply people saying that they want it or when people can't even express what they want. And I think that part of the reason why we have, um, you know, it, it happens with tax policies, it happens with financial policies all the time, which is you can't galvanize people online, it's too confusing and young people don't really care about them as much, but they're, they're critically important. So that's where I think online doesn't really, doesn't really work as well. It's a good year for the question because um, millennials are very engaged in presidential politics and then largely in much greater numbers sit out the midterms. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question about whether that starts to change or whether that remains the same. Um, I have a colleague who thinks that it is extremely unlikely that the Democrats will hold the North Carolina Senate seat for exactly that reason. North Carolina is a state with a lot of young people and in Raleigh and Charlotte and they go to the polls in the presidential years and then they don't in midterm years. And so it's, it's a fascinating dynamic to see how that changes going forward. Um, uh, thank you so much for coming out so early, for asking such great questions. Thank you to our panelists. Enjoy the festival.